Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. While we were going through services, I wanted to show you the initial verse from this actual Parsha, because those of you who were here when I started the text study um, while we were waiting for a minion, you see that on my text sheet, we're already in Deuteronomy, which is about four portions ahead of where we are right now. And I wanted to be able to kind of show you the the original verses that I'm taking this from, even though we're not looking at them in, in this particular text study. So if you want to look at it, you can. It's in Parashat Maseh. Um, it's on page 962 if you have the Eitz Chaim. And it says here, I'm just going to read in English for, for time's sake. The towns that you assign to the Levites shall comprise the six cities of refuge that you are to designate for a manslayer to flee to, to which you shall and to to which you shall add 42 towns. So this is where we first get in Parshat Masay, which is this week's Parsha. This is where we first get this idea of cities of refuge, which is what we're going to go into in a bit more detail in just a second in, um, in Parsha Ve'etchanan, which is two uh, three parshiot later. Thus the total of the towns that you assign to the Levites shall be 48 towns with their pasture. And assigning towns from the holdings of the Israelites take more from the larger groups and less from the smaller. This is a very interesting, this was the other thing I potentially was going to talk about today. It's a very interesting idea that, you know, if you're big, you get a lot of land. And if you're small, you get a little bit of land. It's not really how our world works today. Large families don't always get large houses and small families don't only live in small houses. But, but that's how they tried to apportion the land so that each assigns towns to the Levites in proportion to the share it receives. Seems very fair. That's not what we're talking about today, but I just wanted you to know where this is coming from in terms of a city of refuge. So if you look at your source sheet, again, we're in Parashat Ve'etchanan here, which is which is in a few weeks. Um, but it comes from this idea of these cities of refuge. And I'm just going to read it one more time for those of you who weren't here when I started. And it says... Um, to which um, you're going to send these people to, uh, to these cities of refuge, to which a man who has killed someone could escape. One who unwittingly slew another without having been an enemy in the past, he could flee to one of those cities and live. So what are some questions that you would ask about this idea of cities of refuge? Oh. Great. Alan just asked, how long do you have to stay there? Great. What's another question? Great. So Rachel just asked, is this a lawless place? Meaning, are you safe from everything, right? Are you are you completely in a bubble? Right? Nothing can harm you, like in one of those, um, you know, bubble-wrapped rooms. Like, is, it, can nothing harm you? Yeah, Deb? Mm. <laughs> that's an... Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. I definitely don't know the answer to that question, but I can imagine that it was not positive. <laughs> Deb just asked, "What happens? What ha what are the people who were already living in that city? What? Maybe. Right? <laughs> what would happen to the people who were living in that city who now found out that this was becoming a city of refuge and all of these basically criminals were coming to live amongst them? You know, <laughs> what what would those people think?" And I, I could imagine that if it's becoming a city of refuge, maybe you could see it as a really beautiful thing, right? Like a, a beautiful town of Chuva, if we wanted to be positive about it. If we wanted to be cynical about it, I would say people are probably pretty angry and pretty scared um, that, that their city was now going to be full of, of people who were fleeing 
as something that they had done wrong. Just one second, I'm just going to an answer the other question that Deb asked. So she asked, um, what does it mean without having been an enemy in the past? It's interesting. I had never, when you asked the question, I read it differently than I had read it before. I wonder if what that means is that if you did something unknowingly, it had to also be to a person who you never knew because if you hurt someone who potentially you didn't like and people knew you didn't like, then was it really unknowingly, wink, wink? Like, was this really, did you really not mean to hit that person with your car or did you just oh, sorry, yeah, well, I didn't really like them to begin with, right? I, that, that would be my guess as to what they're saying here, that you really had to have had no connection to the person, the, the harm done to them needed to really come out of nowhere. That would be my guess. Yeah, Bob. Yeah. Right. Right, so that's the whole point, is that you can only go to these cities of refuge if you've done this harm unknowingly, right? You didn't, you didn't actually mean to do it. Yeah, Warren. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sure. Sure. Mm, okay. Right, right. So Warren's pushing back on me using the word criminal because if they did it unknowingly, then they're then they're not a criminal, right? They didn't they didn't do it they didn't do it with any knowledge and therefore maybe this the people in the city should have no problem with it because they didn't mean to do it. They might have done something by accident that was bad, but they didn't mean to do it and so therefore therefore they're not a criminal. It's a point well taken. Yeah, Rosemary. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. 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 Sure, sure. Oh. Sure. Sure. Mm. Mm. Wow. Yeah, those are that is, that is those are both very powerful stories and Rosemary makes a really interesting point that that we might not actually the people of the city might not actually even know who's now living in their city and what they've done and what who who they are what their history is right they could be living next door to someone who did something very heinous to their to their family and you wouldn't know because the whole point of having a city of refuge is that you get to come and be and be a person who hasn't done something something wrong right um in your case obviously if the person literally was living next door they they did do something wrong but um but it's a really interesting point that that we maybe we all live in modern day refuge cities, right? Where we're supposed to take a person um, at you know at face value and not judge them for for where they might have come from or what they might have done. It's very very interesting. So the question that Tyvel, I can't hear you unfortunately. So I see that your hand is up, but I have no sound on the field, so um, I'm not going to be able to hear your question. But you can ask me another time. Um, the, the, the question that I was wondering about from this was also, what can you bring with you, right? When we think about people fleeing a place, whether you're a refugee in modern day, or you're living in a place with natural disasters or what have you, you are constantly thinking about what to take with you. It, my, the last Yisker sermon I gave, I used the example of my grandparents who live in Brentwood, and unfortunately, because of the fires, they've had to think quite a few times about what do we take from our home if we have to evacuate. So 
what I was thinking was when they when this person has to flee again, completely overwhelmed with emotion because they didn't do something that they meant to do, but now they have to leave their home so that they can find refuge, they can find safety from the law, from people who might be out to get them, etc. What are they allowed to take with them? And this piece from the Gemara. It doesn't really answer my question, but I think it's a really beautiful element of an answer to this question. So it says in Makot, which is, I don't know, Chaim, did you ever learn Makot? Yeah, Makot's not a part of the Gemara that we <laughs> that we really learn too much, um, but, uh, but this is a very beautiful piece from it. Rabbi Yitzchak says, what is the verse from which these matters are derived? So we're in the middle of a piece of Gemara here, so we're kind of jumping right in, so that the context is a little bit off. But it says, it is written, and he shall flee to one of these cities and live, right? He shall be in one of these refuge cities that we just that we just read about from Deuteronomy, meaning perform some actions for the unintentional murderer so that life in the city of refuge will be conducive to living for him. All these steps are taken to facilitate that objective. So make sure that the person feels comfortable, right? They shouldn't feel like they have done something that now causes them to live a life that is uncomfortable, that causes them to live a life where they're constantly looking over their shoulder. That's the whole point of the city of refuge, that they get to go somewhere where they can be a person who lives in safety, without fear, etc. It continues. The sages taught in the case of a student who was exiled, so a student who who unwittingly committed some kind of um, something, uh, we're using murder here in the beginning of Makot, so I'll, I'll continue with that example, but if a student did this and they are exiled, his teacher is exiled to the city of refuge with him or with her. Right, so your teacher actually goes with you. You don't go alone, you go with your teacher so that the student can continue studying Torah with her there. So if you are a student and you've been told you have to go to a city of refuge, now all of a sudden your teacher has to go with you. So what are some questions you have about this? Yeah, Alan? Okay, okay. Great, so this might cause a lot of disruption for this teacher. What if the teacher has a partner? What if the teacher has other students, right? What what if the teacher has a livelihood outside of just teaching? All of a sudden now your life is being uprooted by your students' actions, Irv? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Mm, interesting. Yeah, 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 Warren. Mm. <laughs> so Warren is solving the problem. Warren just said that the teacher would appoint an agent so that the teacher doesn't have to leave, but that the teacher's, I don't know, uh, agent, yeah, I'll keep using that word, agent is now the teacher for the student. Yeah, that's very interesting. I don't think that's what the Gemara is saying, but I like that. Yeah, yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. I hope that that's the case. Yeah, Deb. Yeah. Yeah, it's extremely affirming for the student because now not only do you feel like you're going to be cared for, but you also know that you have somebody with you. You're not alone, right? Which is which is not how we think of our own society today, right? If we, if we tell someone they have to go somewhere else, whether it's the refugee crisis 
from multiple places right now to go to different countries, or it's just our criminal system, right? We're, we don't say, oh yeah, bring your spouse with you, bring your teacher with you, bring your best friend with you so that you can have company. We say, get yourself, get yourself, you know, taken care of. And if others can follow you, okay. And if not, not, right? So it is a very powerful situation, both for the teacher and for the student. And so Gemara continues to say, as it is stated, and he shall flee to one of these cities and live, from which it is derived, perform some actions for the unintentional murder, so that life in the city will be conducive to living for him. They're just repeating themselves. That's how the Gemara works. Since Torah study is an integral component of his life, arrangements must be made to ensure continuity in that facet of his existence. So they're not saying now that if you were, I don't know, a musician, that your music teacher should should then go with you, right? What they're saying is that if there is something critical to your living, that you must bring that with you into this city of refuge. So the Torah, sorry, the Talmud is obviously using a Torah teacher because that's what the Talmud is written for and by. So that's what that's what we're we're getting here. But if you were someone who was an artist or someone who is a musician, you would end up with your music teacher or your art mentor. Okay. <clears throat> it finishes here by saying, Rabbi Zara says, from here one learns that a person should not teach a student who is not fit, as that may result in the teacher following the student into exile. Now, this is what's really, really interesting, right? We start off by talking about a student teacher relationship, whereas Deb put really profoundly that it's there's a lot of power there, right? There's a lot of power for the, actually the student in terms of the, the following of a teacher to a student's um, potential, uh, you know, like their captivity is not the right word, but being somewhere else where they're going to have to leave their life, right? But if we think about this from the perspective, from, if we take, you know, 10 steps back and we think about when this teacher and this student met, what the Gemara is saying is that it is also up to the teacher to choose the student who they would follow into exile, right? As a student, we don't always choose our teachers. And as a teacher, by the way, we don't always choose our students. But I can speak from, from having teachers for whom I would 100% follow or want to follow me. And I have students for whom I would follow. And I think there, there are... It's a very rare relationship because it has to be a relationship that goes beyond just that Torah study. Right? Yeah, Chaim. Oh, interesting. Chaim thinks that it might be a, relation, uh, the, a metaphor for the relationship with God. Hmm. 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 That's very interesting. Yeah, no, it's a great thought. <laughs> um, yeah, it could be. And, and a person who goes into this city of refuge could it and i'm taking your your words one step further but could it be that in going into this city of refu refuge you either lose could lose faith in god or could gain a much closer bond with god right 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 sure sure yeah experience that spirituality yeah yeah that's very powerful a, and and also i love the idea of that metaphor of is god the teacher or is god the student Right, right. Yeah, Deb. Sure. Yeah. Mm. Wow, the singer Frank's household really should just write the drosh for the morning of Tishabov. So Deb just mentioned that, you know, in thinking about Tishabov, when we go into exile, 
do do we go into exile with God? Do we go into exile with these moments that are going to keep us feeling safe and feeling protected and feeling supported? Um, and is God one of those things, or are we just in exile? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Productive. Yeah. Huh. So interesting. Alan, did you have your hand up? Yeah. Yeah. Eye for an eye, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Correct, yeah. Mm. Interesting. So this, so Alan gave his own little drosh that, that there is really something um, intentional about thinking about how the person's going to really live in exile, that they are being put in exile because they are both scared for their own life with the pursuers going after them uh, to take revenge on them for whatever they they caused in terms of whether it was death or any other kind of destruction and yet we are supposed to make it such that this person finds full life um and and whatever place they are in this city of refuge yeah deb mm. yeah right right Right, yeah, no, the teachers have to make sure they uphold, they have to practice what they preach, right? They have to uphold their their half of the bargain in teaching this this stuff. So I want to read this uh, passage from Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs from uh, two years ago, I think, maybe three years ago, I think it was 2020. Um, but he he wrote on on Parshat Masay, uh, sorry, on Parshat Ve'et Hanan, um, this particular this particular quote, which I thought was really powerful. If you want to come close to heaven, don't search for kings, priests, saints, or even prophets. They may be great, but a fine teacher helps you to become great, and that is a different thing altogether. So when we think of these people going into these cities of refuge and wanting to bring their teachers with them, however you want to define teacher, whether that's God or a mentor or a partner or whatever, the person who's going to bring you comfort, the person who's going to keep you motivated, keep you learning, keep you in check, right? That's not a king. That's not a person who rules over you. That's not a rabbi, right? It's not a person who just gives you guidance, uh, uh, like of old, right? A person who just stands on a high, on a high altar and tells you where to sacrifice and how. That's not what, that's not what you need in those moments. You need the person who's going to be on your same level. You need a person who's going to be able to teach you, who's going to be able to have those moments of chevruta with you. And so noticing that in our teachers, and again, however you define teacher. It doesn't have to be student, teacher, classroom. That's not what they're getting at, but rather a person or a something going with Chaim's drash, right, that, that's going to really pull you to be committed and continue to grow and continue to live uh, in, this, in this city of refuge. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.